On this week's episode of Travel and Turnup, we interviewed Tiffany Harris, the community manager at Amazon's Educate program, the founder of You Don't Look Jewish, and an avid traveler exploring almost 90 countries in the world. Tune in and let's travel and turn up. Hey. Hey. Yo. What's good, fam? Looking for the perfect travel podcast? We, we got, got you. you. We're travel entrepreneurs that have been to every inch of the globe. Representing the U.S., the U.K., the Caribbean, and Africa, we cover the entire diaspora. So check us out at TravelAndTurnUp.com. Come travel with us every week, link with the diaspora, and become a better, more informed traveler. So maybe in this episode, um, Tiffany can speak some Paswati to you. Um, oh, and then y'all can yeah. like connect. Oh, yeah. Wag one, Tiffany. <laughs> he's, so, he's so extra. So nice. My favorite, my favorite thing that I will ever, I, I mean, I forgot like everything because I was always like eating jellies, you know, when I was in Jamaica because they're delicious and they're everywhere and it's like a great way to stay hydrated in the heat. These so it was like, don't know what jelly is. These guys don't know what uh, jelly is. Okay. Jellies, yeah. and you got to know what jellies are because if you see one, you have to take advantage. But it's a young coconut, so they're like oh, the big okay. green coconuts or coconut in Pat- Jamaican patois. And um, so I was saying, like, give me the machete so I can open this coconut, which is something I was doing a lot in Jamaica. So it's a fresh coconut. So inside, like the meat is like a little more like jelly and it's got like all this like amazing fresh coconut water, which is great to drink, especially after a workout. And then when you have the machete, you can open up the coconut in the end and like eat all the meat and it's delicious. And, you know, if you're not drinking it for like pure hydration sake, it's wonderful to mix with some delicious, uh, apple, Appleton rum or like the rum of your choice. Um, yeah. Ting and whites is also a good thing in Jamaica. (laughs) Tiffany, I don't know if you know about that. I'm sure you do. That's what I'm thinking. I'm happy that you can give these guys a cultural lesson on Jamaica because this year of visiting Jamaica, they want to go to David personally wants to go back to China as soon as oh my gosh. borders reopen. Every, every you know, <laughs> David so much for his destination choices. And it's the funniest thing on the travel podcast. Yeah, you won't find those fresh coconuts in China. I mean, there are other great things <laughs> to offer, but like you got to try the Ting and Whites, the fresh coconut, and then you got to start winding. <laughs> no, I'm coming to Jamaica soon. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> love, love. All right, so I think we're all on. All right. Um, on this podcast, as you guys know, we love experts and we love entrepreneurs. And today we are very, very blessed to be joined by both Tiffany Harris. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome, welcome. So a quick intro for Tiffany. Tiffany is the founder of You Don't Look Jewish, um, and she'll explain a little bit what that is. She also speaks three languages. She served on the board of multiple organizations. Um, She's a Peace Corps alum and served as a country desk officer. We were just talking about Jamaica, and she was in the Caribbean, and in some um, other islands as well. Um, and she's an accomplished traveler with 89 countries visited. So Tiffany, welcome to the pod and uh, please let our audience know a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much. So, so happy to be here and honored to be on this pod. I love, I caught the travel bug, uh, in college and ever since then just been on this kind of 
fun, incredible journey of discovering new cultures and new countries and new cities and, and kind of adopted this sort of backpacker lifestyle. But I guess originally I was born in Boise, Idaho, which is a beautiful state in some ways, but not a state that I really claim. Um, I feel much more at home in Seattle where I spent um, most of my childhood and uh, early adult life. Um, so I lived in Boise, Idaho until I was four and we actually left because at the time in the early 90s in that part of the country, um, there was a huge resurgence of like uh, neo-Nazis and the KKK. And so my mom, single, single white mom with uh, two mixed race kids, it was no longer safe for us to live there. So uh, she packed up the station wagon and we drove two days and landed in Seattle um, where we at points in my life experienced a very different kind of more subtle racism, but uh, we can get into that later. But overall, it was a really, really beautiful place to grow up. And I feel really, really fortunate to have uh, grown up in a place where you're like surrounded by mountains and water. Um, and, you know, as someone with the travel bug, like relatively easy access to other states and other countries and things like that. Um, yeah. So was educated in Seattle and I had my first job after college, like a very corporate job and just was like, this is not for me, not yet. And, um, I ended up quitting and then backpacked around the world for several months and, um, spent a lot of the time in Central and South America and then in, um, Western Europe, Central, Eastern Europe, um, and then I lived overseas for a period in Morocco. After that, I was in Switzerland. And then I did my grad studies in Israel. Side note, I forgot to mention my mom is Jewish and I'm also Jewish. And that's the um, faith tradition that I grew up in. And it, it, it means a lot and it informs a lot of the, the way I, I live my life and the philosophies I have on, on life and personhood and community building and social justice. Um, and that was actually also part of my first trip overseas. I went on um, a program that we call Birthright. So I had the chance to go to Israel essentially for free. It was the first time I had a passport, first time I'd, I'd been overseas. And from that point on, I was just like, wow, this is, this is so incredible. And that's the point. I think I was like, I wasn't old enough to drink in the States. So I must have been like 20 or something. Because I remember I was like so excited to like, you know, go to a bar, buy alcohol. <laughs> so, something that I couldn't do in the States. I mean, that wasn't the only thing I was excited about, but I was like, whoa, this is different. Um, and so, yeah, that was my first trip overseas. And I totally caught the travel bug after that because it was just so amazing to go to a place and hear a new language and see the changing landscape and um, just learn about the history. I mean, some of which I already knew being a you know member of the Jewish community, but um I stayed on after that, and um, it's it's no longer safe to to take this trip. But um, I had the chance to go to Egypt and Syria, like pre-war, and um, did some like travel and exploration around the Middle East. And then I also realized I was like, wow, you can also travel pretty cheaply because I was like super poor in college um, and also growing up, <laughs> which is why we never traveled. But I realized like, okay, I can stay in hostels, you know, like some hostels you can like sleep on the roof with your sleeping bag and I'm totally comfortable roughing it. Um, 
you know, did also, which I wouldn't recommend and definitely wouldn't do now in these days, but like quite a bit of hitchhiking and, you know, you hop on the roof of a van or like a back of a truck and get to where you need to go. So I got to see a lot of the world that way. Um, that's not how I travel these days. Not that I'm like super bougie or anything, but have like made some slight upgrades, but yeah, that's where it all began. And then um, after Israel, I came back to the States, came to DC, um, worked for the Fulbright program for a period of time. So I got to work with international scholars, which I loved. Um, and then I worked for Peace Corps headquarters as a desk officer, as you said. I've covered um, a lot of West Africa, East Africa. Then I covered the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands. And my last uh, role at Peace Corps was... Um, leading um, a large portion of the public affairs team. So um, that was great because then I got to cover the whole world and we were in 60 something countries at the time. So, and then after that, I transitioned over to Amazon and was managing a global education program in cloud computing, which was again, amazing to cover a global scope. And now um, I'll again be in a global role at an organization called Moisha House, which is focused on um, community building in the Jewish world with young adults. And I'm super excited for this transition. So that is me. There's probably a lot of other stuff I'm missing, but I think we'll we'll probably touch on some of that in the the rest of the interview. Is is there anything you don't do? You you drop <laughs> in different like you know um, organizations which do amazing things throughout the world. Um, with the birthright going to Israel with the Fulbright Scholarship, which is an amazing amazing program. You you've accomplished, you know, in, in traveling still in the meantime, you tr- you've accomplished so many at such a young age. So it's, it's amazing to even just have you as a guest on the show. I, oh, I thank think- you. I think I will say really quickly when people say, is there anything you don't do? And I'm always like, yeah, I don't sleep enough, obviously, but most <laughs> of us don't. Cause like, how can you get, you know, there's, life is so short and the days are so short. So I'm always just trying to make the most of it. And I probably don't sleep enough, but like, I don't know, I get up early and every day I'm just really generally very excited for what's next. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm lacking, but, but working on it. But it's a good energy space (laughs) for you to be especially with COVID going on. But um, if you can just um, take us back a little bit into your childhood, you said um, relocating from Idaho and going into Seattle where you said that racism was a a little bit, I guess it was more subtle than when you were in Idaho. But how was that, um, you know, growing up in a household with a, you know, a white Jewish mom you being, um, uh, I guess you could say a biracial child, how was that growing up in the United States? Um, what childhood tribulations did you face, which I guess sort of kind of molded you or helped inspire you or, you know, provided insight to what you wanted to become or the changes that you wanted to make as an adult? Yeah, so, you know, some of my, my first memories, like... When you're growing up, like what you see in your household, you just see as normal. So I had, there are actually like five kids in my family and, um, like we're all like half brothers and sisters. So, um, yeah, my mom is an incredible, uh, very open-minded woman who's like very different from the community in which uh, she grew up in like Westchester County in the New York area. Um, but 
you know, I thought that was totally normal. I have like a brother and sister with blonde hair and blue eyes. And then, um, you know, uh, my oldest sister who's like full Hungarian. And then my other brother and I, who are both half black. Um, although I don't like to say half black, I'm like, I'm black and Jewish. I'm not half anything. I'm a whole person. Um, but mm. you know, we, we definitely looked like a very different mixed race family, but I loved that growing up and I thought it was totally normal. It's kind of only when you start to interact with other people who tell you that that's strange or weird that you start to feel self-conscious about it. But I have very vivid memories of um, the kind of racism that we faced in Idaho and very vivid memories. Um, I don't know if we can say this on this podcast, but I'll, you know, say it verbatim and these are not my words, but, uh, you know, my mom being called a nigger lover. And I remember once we arrived in Seattle, um, or actually Tacoma, that was like our first stop after driving this long journey to the Pacific Northwest where my mom thought it would be safer to raise mixed race children. Uh, we pull up in a McDonald's, um, you know, this is a 99 cent chicken sandwiches or whatever we were eating that was like cheap and filling at the time. And there's like this homeless guy sitting outside and, um, he looks at my mom and looks at us and then he, he called her a nigger lover. And it was just like, you know, even this guy who, I don't know what situation he was in that, you know, he didn't have a home and he was like drinking outside and things like that. But even in that state, he felt like a sense of superiority toward my mom for having these like mixed race kids and like the choices she made, which, yeah, like, and I remember like, she just looked at us and she was like, damn it. You know, it's like, I like, we're at the edge of the country here, you know, like we're at the very, very edge of the country. That's supposed to be like one of the most progressive and understanding places, not even understanding, like it, it should, it it even shouldn't be progressive and understanding. It's just normal. Like we're all people, we're all the same, um, that that happened. And so, you know, and Seattle's a very amazing, amazing liberal place, but the way, um, you know, racism and discrimination shows up in different parts of the country. Sometimes I think it's a little more like covert and subtle in those areas. And I, you know, and, and also cases where people don't, you know, intentionally mean to be, um, racist or, or display those biases, but you have to kind of call it out. So that's, that's sort of what I learned growing up. And then, um, it was interesting just growing up with a, you know, white Jewish mom from Westchester County. And of course, I will also add that when my mom was growing up, like she wasn't considered white, like uh, the Jewish community, very much like minority population in the States. And, and we've made like incredible, you know, gains and, and, and social mobility in this country. But when she was growing up, um, she used to get like beat up and in fights all the time because people would, you know, if they knew she was Jewish, like, so that's what she faced growing up in New York, which is a place that we like, you know, consider so diverse and there's like such a large Mm -hmm. Jewish population. But Mm -hmm. I think that also goes to show that like culture, um, not even culture, but I guess like power and privilege is not static, right? It moves throughout generations. And, and right now I would say like our communities in a relative, relative, I will say, because there's still a lot of crazy stuff happening, but more safe position than when my mom was growing up. But, you know, that, that could always change. But I think for her that definitely, you know, facing that type of discrimination, I think she always felt, and so many of our community members felt a real kinship toward the black community in this country because, um, 
of the background of, um, you know, shared, shared legacies, uh, understanding discrimination. And also, you know, I was raised, um, in the Jewish tradition, like under the tenets that like love the stranger, um, you know, you stick up for the marginalized. Uh, we have like this concept of tikkun olam, which means repair the world and, you know, make the world a better place for the next generations to come. And so that was very much a central part of, of, the ethos in our house and some of the decisions I made and the way I chose to live my life. And I also feel like, you know, these are painful memories of, of, um, facing racism and discrimination when I was a kid, but I feel like it was kind of a charge to like, okay, you have this perspective from two sometimes distinct worlds and that it is my job in some ways and all of our jobs to really bridge those divides um, and help people understand um, that experience on on both sides and and sort of our shared legacy and experience. I think I've heard it was actually, oh gosh, I don't want to screw this up, but maybe Congressman John Lewis, someone or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I can't remember who said it, but it was like our fates are tied together or like our destinies are wrapped up in each other. Maybe MLK was speaking about like the white community and the black community, but I really do believe that for our, our both of our worlds. So um, that's the center of a lot of the work I do around um, racial justice in the Jewish community. And also too, you know, because as a brown Jew, I was for a long time in my life asked like, what are you doing here in the synagogue or in a Jewish space or, you know, getting mistaken for like wait staff or something like that. So I don't want other people mm. to have those experiences for sure. And I know it comes oftentimes from a place of ignorance. And so you just have to like speak up uh, when you see those. Um, also like one last thing is like, yeah, growing up again with a white Jewish mom, I, so many points in my life, found myself like sitting between these two worlds and told, oh, you talk white or you act white or you're this or you're that, or people trying to really just like place like these kind of strict boundaries on my identity and the way I behave. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's been kind of an interesting experience. But when I finally moved to DC after living overseas for a number of years, and actually my brother and I came here in 2008 for Obama's first inauguration. And then I moved back later, but I remember we were like, looked at each other and we were like, oh my God, there's so many black people here. This is so awesome. Like I've never seen so many beautiful brown faces <laughs> in one space, but I remember we looked at each other. We were in like a grocery store probably like, we were like, there's so many black people here. Like this Welcome is awesome. The and, yeah, <laughs> the city. and like, I just remember that feeling of like, like this is wonderful. And I live in a neighborhood called Columbia Heights. And I just like, I love being surrounded by brown people and white people. It's like something that I really, I will never take for granted, you know, having grown up in a pretty homogenous community. And the fact that like, I can be black and Jewish and then go, um, the bakery on my corner is like this Salvadorian bakery and then go get like awesome, like Latin American pastries. And like, I just love the diversity in this city, in this country and, um, feel very, very privileged to be able to experience that. I had one question kind of going off what you're saying now and something you mentioned earlier that stuck, stuck with me a bit. I know you mentioned when you were growing up that there was this kind of, uh, neo-Nazi resurgence. I know this is probably a deeper question than the conversation I perhaps developed to, but it was something that I was interested to hear your perspective on. It's the fact that 
Um, I think now during the current climate, especially in the US, there is a lot of rhetoric about how, you know, perhaps the way the, the government acts or, you know, the way state actors go about their business could be seen as fascist and people label people as neo-Nazis mm-hmm. and all of that. And I was really keen to get your perspective as someone at the intersection of, you know, being black and also being Jewish, because a lot of these things are usually in relate, especially right now, are in relation to the black community, but then they're also being labeled as kind of neo-Nazi or, you know, they're, they're people that affiliate with those groups as well. Yeah. Um, it's really, really, really scary. I mean, I, you know, I used to work for the federal government, so I was like very, felt very like limited in what I could say, but now I'm a private citizen, so like, <laughs> I can be a little more open. When the election happened, um, I think both like, and, and uh, talking about the 2016 election, um, I think both like as a woman seeing the kind of like rampant sexism in this country and indeed in many parts of the world, but like, um, we saw an incredible amount of sexism, both from men and from women. That was frightening. Um, especially like as a survivor, like I know so many women are. Um, and then from the racial perspective, also terrifying. I, I find it terrifying because I just see this rise in like nationalism around the world and it's incredibly dangerous. Um, especially for minority communities like the Jewish community and the black community. I mean, yeah, that it's, I, I don't, I wish I had something more positive to say about that. <laughs> it's just, nah, it's it scary. Is, it is what it is. Um, but I have a question then about something that you did say about uh, growing up Jewish and it kind of also informed your faith and that kind of thing. So like you did the whole nine, you went to synagogue. Did you have a bat mitzvah? Yeah. So we went to synagogue, um, during, like, I would say like the more major holidays, there are some more minor holidays that like I discovered as an adult and have fun celebrating and actually teaching my mom and my family about. Um, and I did have a bat mitzvah in Jerusalem actually, which was very special. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My bat mitzvah was like on, um, birthright. So in my mom's family growing up, like women didn't have bat mitzvahs. They were like a little bit more traditional. Bat mitzvahs are like a relatively, I think like a relatively new and and in some communities more progressive practice. But I was like, hell yeah, I, I want to have a bat, mitzvah. a bat mitzvah. I got a Hebrew name. Oh, that's like you're coming into adulthood. And um, for women in the Jewish community, it's 12. And then for boys, it's 13 because like women mature faster. We all know that's so true. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I got a Hebrew name, which is Eliana, and it means... Um, God has answered. And so like my Hebrew name is actually Eliana Bat Miriam, which is, um, you know, like Tiffany daughter of Marily, which is my mom's name essentially. So yeah, it was, it was incredibly special. And I remember, um, you know, you walk up to the Torah and I've been lucky like now, you know, as an adult and going to synagogue more and more, like getting to see the Torah, which is just like, 
I don't know, just like centuries of, of words and study. And it's, it's what we just cherished and fought for as a community over generations and generations. And I think about, um, communities where it was illegal to practice Judaism, uh, or where Torah scrolls were destroyed or we were persecuted for being Jewish and to be able to be in Jerusalem, a place that like my ancestors prayed to go back to. Um, after the first expulsion and and to touch the Torah and to read from it, I was just like blown away. I mean, that was like one of those things that reminded me of like progress, you know? Like I don't think that my mom or my grandparents could have ever dreamed that I would be in that situation, um, especially as like a black Jew, a person of color there, standing up there with our most holy document. I, it, it was just, it was incredible. Um, and I, I think say. about that experience a lot. Yeah, yeah. You're a black girl. You're a Jewish Jewish, too. That's crazy. Go ahead, Tiffany. You had a question. Uh, first of all, please don't say Jewish Jewish. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like Jewish Jewish, like Jewish Jewish, like a real Jewish person. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> um, no, yeah, there's was, no real Jewish, right? Like, there's like, yeah, hmm. or like everything. Although I did, yeah, we say Jewish Jewish sometimes and people say Jewish, <laughs> but yeah, just Jewish. <laughs> No, the question I was because I I grew up in a household. Um, my stepdad is Jewish, so I grew up celebrating. But my my biological father's side of the family is super like pro black and you know pan African. So when I was growing up, I would um, during December I would celebrate Hanukkah and we would read from the Torah and break bread bread and eat. What is it? Matzah. What is it? Uh, the, the something fish. No, the something fish soup. J- J- oh, like gavilta fish. Gavilta fish. Oh, and oh man, you yeah, so brave. Was it Russian one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Like, That's amazing. I'm not a huge like a spoiler. Like, not a huge fan of gavilta fish, but that's awesome that you you ate that. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we would celebrate Kwanzaa also. So after like reading the Torah and cool. things like that, we would go. But um, I was mentioning when you mentioned the bar mitzvah, is it true that if you um have one parent that's Jewish, your mom has to be Jewish in order for you to be able to have a bar mitzvah? Is that correct? Like you can't have a Jewish father but a non-Jewish mom and have a bar mitzvah. So it depends what kind of like Jewish faith tradition you belong to. Um, Cause I would say like in more observant or Orthodox or traditional communities, um, you know, there's the belief and also like the is Israeli government that like Judaism is only passed down through the mother and your mom has to be Jewish. And if it's your dad who's Jewish, then you have to go through conversion. Um, but generally like the communities that I belong to, like I am always personally and, a lot of the people I know and a lot of the religious leaders that, that I know and, and have had the chance to work with, like, it's just, it's so exciting when anyone is interested in Judaism and going deeper in Judaism, whether you have a plan to convert or have a bat mitzvah, or, you know, as, as they would say in Christian tradition, become confirmed. It's so exciting that if there's like a serious interest, um, and study that, that that's generally honored, um, 
So yeah, it would be like more traditional belief that it's just passed down through the father. And I guess that's like also Jewish law, but I think a lot of communities believe that it's both parents. And I mean, again, like we talked on the phone a little bit about like the historical connotation that comes from many of these beliefs. I mean, the Jewish community was a community that it was has been persecuted for thousands and thousands of years. Um, uh, with persecution comes, you know, the rape and pillaging of communities. And if you think about like, you know, even like a couple hundred years ago, like you didn't always know, you know, who a child belonged to, except for mm-hmm. the, the fact that like they're tied to this mother. And so I've heard, um, from scholars that that's where that belief comes from. Um, and it's interesting in Islam, it's the opposite, right? I think it's passed down through the father, but I think there's some historical connotation um, to that belief. And if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. Like I think for me and for a lot of people, like it has more to do with like neshama, which is like your soul. Like, do you have a Jewish soul? Do you identify as Jewish? Do you identify with the history and um you know, the, the, the laws of our books and the Torah, like that means more than necessarily like your bloodline specifically. Mm. But that wasn't my official question though. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like I get off on a tangent. (laughs) You can keep me on track. I just wanted to say, um, what are the odds that we have to, you know, People called Tiffany that are like black Jewish. <laughs> Yo, hold on. First if you say our Tiffany is black know. Jewish, bro, that's the funniest well, thing no, that did, you like, said on this podcast. Is, you know, Jewish people in the I'm like family. so you surprised that like we don't already know each other, like as Tiffany's yeah, in this in, world and as Jews yeah. of color. Like we'll we'll definitely stay connected. No, but so if uh, your family or I don't know if you're like uh from Jamaica or if you just find yourself living there, but like there is like a pretty significant Jewish community in Jamaica and has been for quite some time and the community is incredibly really? interesting. So I'm not surprised it, when I meet, right? It, yeah, it is. So this is the, interestingly, I actually don't identify as a Jewish woman because you know, both my, I wasn't born to Jewish parents. It's my stepdad. So I grew up in a culture and now my stepdad is a Jew for Christ interestingly enough but going back to Jamaica uh, we started they started promoting like local tours and so in downtown Kingston there is actually a Jewish community there and I went on a tour <laughs> to um, it's, it's interesting how I even ended up there and they were talking about I went to what is it synagogues I believe I went to yeah two you have a sand sand floor synagogue which is incredible yeah. it's very special I think it's like just in Jamaica and maybe Suriname that have this it's such a beautiful space I'm so glad that you got to see it it was extremely interesting and that's it's just weird how that came up this conversation um I do want yeah, to and really quick I will say like again I think you know, historical context, like the sand floors, which you see, um, 
in parts of the Caribbean. The tradition comes from like the community in Jamaica, I think, is largely Sephardic. So coming from like southern Spain and some parts of North Africa, again, like has to do with like the expulsion where the diaspora landed. But at so many parts throughout history, it was illegal to to gather and, you know, to practice our tradition. And the sand floor, I, I had heard like silenced, you know, footsteps and things like that. And so that's the tradition and that's why it exists in Jamaica. Um, something that was brought from, from the countries where, where the community came from. So I, it's pretty unique, but it also tied to a somewhat troubling history. Interesting. Um, I don't know if, if they had another question, but my next question um, was related to Morocco. I know you said that you worked in Morocco sometime. Also, you speak Berber Arabic. I'm not sure if that's the correct way to say it. But um, one thing, when traveling to Morocco, initially I was a bit hesitant because I feel as if some countries in North or northeastern Africa, they carve somewhat carve themselves out and consider themselves Middle Eastern as opposed to African. So I was expecting this in Morocco, and then when I traveled throughout Morocco and went maybe further south and curved around to Essaouira, we um, oh, were able. My to visit. favorite city, Essaouira, so beautiful. Um, Sorry, go amazing. ahead. <laughs> oh, the energy, the vibe is such an amazing city. Such but, good vibes. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, speak of. Speak some of, of um, about the energy of Essaouira because most people go to Fez in the Blue City in Marrakech. People don't really explore, you know, uh, the different parts of Morocco, but also going to see Moroccans with a darker skin and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. understanding the story of Morocco. And one thing I loved about Morocco was Moroccans were proudly African. And that just was a bit of a surprise to me because of my own preconceived notions. So if you can just talk to us a little bit more about your time spent in Morocco and what led you to learn the language as well. Yeah. So, um, oh gosh, what was the first thing? So uh, the languages, um, I learned uh Berber and Darija. Darija is Moroccan Arabic. It's pretty distinct from other forms of Arabic. Like when I've traveled around the Middle East, like people, you know, don't understand Darija. So I just have to speak English or like what I know in Fusa, which is uh, like standard, modern standard Arabic. Um, and then Berber, it's actually like kind of a controversial term because I think Berber comes from like Roman barbarian. Um, so there's been kind of a reclaiming of the language now the alphabet is taught in schools and different things like that and and even more progress made actually during the arab spring in morocco so there are three i so actually that family of languages like in Morocco, you would call it Amazigh, and Amazigh or Tamazigh, the feminine version, means free man. So from barbarian to free man. Um, so it's a term of, you know, it's, it's, it's pride. It's like an, a, a people and a language with a lot of history and, and incredible culture tied to it. So the language family is called Amazigh, and, um, there are three dialects. There's Tashlahait, which is what I learned. That's spoken in the southern areas. Tamazigh, which is spoken in the mid-Atlas, and then Tarifit in the north. And then in Algeria and Tunisia, you have like a bunch of different other Amazigh dialects. And then also in the Sahara, where 
this, how do we speak? Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the language, but it was somewhat similar. And then I heard um, a bit of like Tash in Mali and parts of West Africa when I was there because of the trade lines. But yeah, so learning the language, I had to because I was in a tiny, tiny village where people didn't speak English, they didn't speak French. Um, most people didn't even speak Darija, which is Arabic. So learning the language was out of survival. And, you know, Peace Corps has a great language learning program and local teachers. So we spent essentially the first three months, uh, six days a week, five hours a day studying language and culture. So it was super intense, um, but necessary, obviously, because then after that three months, you go off on your own and you've got to buy food and pay bills and do um, community work and have meaningful conversations with your community members. So you need the language to be able to do that. I did face, um, you know, uh, Peace Corps, I think, does a good job of or tries to do a pretty good job of getting like a diverse swath of Americans serving overseas, you know, to represent this country accurately. Um, they've gotten even better about it over the years, but we had like some Indian American folks, um, black men and women, um, you know, Latino folks and uh, Asian Americans and, you know, every, every race and ethnicity represented. And all of us faced like very different, um, forms of racism and discrimination. I know for me personally, I got called the N word. Um, sometimes people would bark at me. I had a, I was dating like another, like a white guy volunteer at the time. And people would always say to him, like, why is your girlfriend so dark? Like date, you know, somebody who's lighter skinned, like, why would you like, you know, taint your bloodline like that? <laughs> Things like that. And people would always like, every time I was like trying to buy soap, people would give me whitening cream. And I was like, yo, I can read like, this is white. This is not what I asked for. Like, stop well, trying to get wild. me to bleach my no. skin. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I would ask like anything, whether it was like lotion or soap, they'd be like, here, this is what you need. And I was like, no, thank you. Um, which is actually super disappointing to see some of the brands that we use in the States and in Europe, like Dove and stuff like that, producing these whitening creams. So mm. sorry, Dove, I stopped buying it because I was like, that is not only is it uh, bad from like a psychological perspective, I think, but it's also those whitening creams are like incredibly bad for you uh, health wise. But anyway, so I faced like some racism and discrimination, um, but my village was in the very southern part of Morocco. So we had a lot of people from the Sahara and, and different areas. And, um, you know, there's been this incredible history of trade between West Africa and that part of Morocco. So people were a little bit darker. The interesting thing was that everybody thought I was Moroccan. And so when I would tell people I was American, they're like, yeah, sure. Like, so am I. <laughs> you know? And so, and there's a very different standard of way that like, you know, uh, rural Moroccan women are expected to dress and behave. So that was also a bit of a challenge. Like I covered my hair, I wore long skirts, but it was very strange for people that I did my own, you know, shopping in the market. Like the only people in the market in my small village were, um, sex workers and men. Uh, but I was like, I'm going to do my own grocery shopping. So, you know, it, it was a very interesting experience. All that being said, I will say like, there are some incredibly beautiful aspects in the culture, um, things I really loved about living there and things that I found more challenging, especially from a gender, race, uh, and religious perspective. But, you know, when I went into Peace Corps, I was in my early 20s and I had this like strong sense of cultural relativism where I was just like, every culture is equal and nothing is bad or good. We're all just different. Then there were some things that I was like, 
no, the status of women here, like, I feel like that's problematic, especially given some of my experiences. But yeah, you know, it just depends where you go. And I think um, also in terms of like their own identity, I, I think I got a really interesting kind of view of that during the World Cup in, I guess, was it like 2010? So World Cup 2010, um, I would watch the different games uh, in parts of Morocco. And like the people I would watch with, they identified more as European rather than uh, Middle Eastern or African. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe that has to do with like French colonization, but they really like cheered for the European teams. And when you would meet someone in Morocco, I remember the big thing was like, okay, real or Barca and like, which one you chose, like depended on like what kind of person you are. So I remember I was, I was hitchhiking one time, uh, sorry, Peace Corps. That was like totally illegal, but I had to get back to my village. It was dark out and it's a van full of dudes, like scary looking dudes with like their faces completely covered and just like you know, the black coal eyeliner for the dust and they open the door and it's dark and I'm like, okay, I'm either going to get murdered or get a ride home. But like, let's see what happens. <laughs> I remember the guy, like he swings the van door open and some guy inside pops his head out and he's like, I'm like, oh, like I need a ride back to my village. Like, are you guys going this way? And he's like, real or Barca? I was like, Barca? And they're like, yay! <laughs> in the van. So I was like, okay, good. I picked right. But like, wow, yeah. So they're, they're, they, they, yeah, thank you, Messi. Like, <laughs> big ups. But um, the only time that I found like um, the Moroccan community I watched the games with really identified with being African was when Ghana was playing the U.S. And they were like cheering the hell oh. out of Ghana. <laughs> like just so anti-US. I was like, oh, okay. So it's it's only if like, you know, Africa is like battling against the US that like you want to be African. Okay. I see. I see. And then like Ghana ended up kicking our butts. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting, but I think like all places, it just depends uh, who you're with and where you are. But yeah, I know that's kind of not a very straightforward answer, but you know, national racial identity is nuanced, right? I really wanted to ask kind of very much along the same line, um, just because you've been to so many countries, um, like more than twice the number of countries I've been to, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get more of your experience traveling through other parts of the world. I don't know all the countries you've been to necessarily, but, um, just what your experiences have been being someone who is both black and Jewish, because again, uh, not that I always want to keep bringing that up, but even for me as a, I'm black, but then I'm also British. Um, there's a lot of countries where I've wanted to travel to, but then because of one, because of the racial aspect. So how I might be treated because I'm black. But then on the flip side, um, I know you might not have, you know, like an Israeli passport or anything like that, but there's definitely places that I've wanted to travel to where I've been hesitant to because of just the, you know, Israeli conflicts with other nations. And so there's places where if I travel, then it might be harder to go to Israel after or vice versa. If I go to say some Middle Eastern countries, it might be harder to come back to the US after. So I wanted to know how you've managed to navigate that and how you felt um, dealing with, I don't know if you've dealt with much other racial incidents in other countries you've traveled to. Yeah. So there's like, you know, race, gender, nationality, like those can all be challenges depending, um, they can be like 
beneficial or challenges depending on where you're going? Because you might go to some countries that are like, we love the UK or like, we love Americans and others that are like, hey, you funded this coup in like whatever generation and like, we're still suffering from that. And so it just really depends. One thing that's really, it helped me um, some years ago is um, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, you get like a Peace Corps passport. And then um, when I worked for the US government, I had an official passport that I would travel with. So I had different stamps and different passports and that was really beneficial. So, you know, you don't, um, don't have to deal with some of the same challenges when you enter certain airports, depending on countries you'd previously visited. There are so many countries that I want to visit that I just can't, um, because of like the geopolitical situation with the U S like I would love to go to, um, Afghanistan one day or Pakistan. Um, and I mean, not just geopolitical situation with the U.S., but there are sometimes like their own internal um, political, social, religious turmoil. Uh, would love to go to Iran one day. Um, no, yeah, I mean, you face, definitely face like sexism, racism, and discrimination. It's so the things that have been helpful was like having uh, two passports, which I know is a luxury, but if anyone's able to do that, would always recommend it. Um and you know to Sorry, study. Just a quick one: Is that two passports for the same country? Yeah, two passports for the okay. same country, um, cool. or two passport or two different countries. Like if you're able to get a passport based on like you know family origin or something like that, um, and then to kind of have an understanding of like uh, you know whatever countries' relationships with other countries. Maybe some are banned if you've gone here or there. Requires a little bit of research ahead of time, and then. Um, I've done a lot of like backpacking. I have a pretty diverse group of friends, but like uh, backpacking uh, with white people can sometimes be helpful <laughs> because like people will like know that you're a foreigner if like they look different um, and you're with them. And I do that now too. Sometimes like I don't want it to sound like I'm using my white friends because I love you guys and I love you as travel partners and friends and other things. But like, you know, now I've been like doing these like travels in some of our national parks, which are in rural parts of the country, which are parts of the world and indeed the country that I live in that I'm kind of uneasy about sometimes. Like I really want to go to the, you know, EJF museum down in Alabama. I would not do that trip solo as a woman of color. Um, and I do a lot of hiking out in Virginia and West Virginia, and it definitely helps like to have like a group of diverse individuals. I feel like white people can give you cover in some areas like that. And it's like, that's allyship right there. Like, you know, to just be there, speak up when you can, um, because mm -hmm. I definitely feel uncomfortable in some of these places, but you just have to be vigilant, do a little research ahead of time and, and, you know, don't go solo if if you're able to make that choice. But isn't isn't that a little bit sad that in 2020 we're talking about traveling the United States and feeling as if you need a white traveling partner or a diversified group, and so you feel safe as a black woman traveling in a space. And for those you know listeners who are you know, located outside the state, Virginia and West Virginia. And once you go below that belt, it's, it's, you can hit rate, you can hit areas if you're driving by road as a black person, you don't feel safe stopping at night. And this yeah, is 20 for sure. United States. And I think, I think, you know, not en enough people understand 
what racism looks like in America. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think it's super sad and disappointing and it just like highlights the incredible amount of work that still needs to be done both by us as people of color, but also by our white allies. Um, Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely bums me out that I feel like, oh, sometimes when I travel in these areas, I need to have like a white, like, I'm not going to say savior. No, like a white like counterpart to sort of like deflect <laughs> some of the racism. Um, and indeed, like it doesn't help people in so many situations. But for, I hate, you know, I hate to say it, but for in some ways it makes me feel safer. And it's not just below D.C., our nation's capital, like in Virginia and West Virginia, it's like above too, like in Pennsylvania or like any sometimes rural part of this country. Pennsylvania is a big one. Um, but it was really, it was interesting. So my friends and I, we went, we have like a quarantine pod and we do like little trips together safely. Of course, like we all get like tested before and after, and we wear our masks and hand wash and everything. But like, it was like me, um, a woman who is Latina and then like uh, two like black guys or they're like mixed race, but like we're all just like this, you know, group of brown folks driving through West Virginia. We stop at a gas station and my friend Javi is wearing like a shirt with a big picture of Obama and then his face mask said Biden on it. And then we're all just like, you know, wearing our gear that we left DC in and we walk into this gas station, no one's wearing a mask. And we could just feel like we were all like, yeah, we feel like the searing kind of like disdain for us as soon as we walk in. And then we started talking about Cracker Barrel, which is like a restaurant, a chain of restaurants in the States, but usually find them in rural America. And all of a sudden it just broke. Yeah, food food is is great. The price is on point. Yeah, the portions are great. It's like Southern comfort food. And all of a sudden, so we mentioned Cracker Barrel. And then all of a sudden, there's this guy like, you know, there's Cracker Barrel down the street. And then one up, uh, like, could also barely understand that. But like talking about all the different Cracker Barrels in the area. And then we're just like everyone in the gas station, these like scary looking white dudes. uh, Just, you know, we had this conversation around food. And we were like, man, Cracker Barrel is like the unifying factor. (laughs) our groups like if we're ever <laughs> unsafe and I'll just be like Cracker Barrel and like start talking about it but it was really funny that it was just like okay we can find we can still find common ground on some things um, but I don't know it was just a test of it to like we felt the hatred and we felt the awkwardness and then we could connect on food. And then as we left, we're like saying bye to everyone, high in, like they're giving us directions to the closest Cracker Barrel, the various Cracker Barrels along the way. And then, um, yeah, it was like broke the tension. It was fine. It was such a wild experience, though. I mean, that's but so actually what you just said, though, is a really big reason or, or what I was hoping to hit in this conversation. So this is going to be a difficult question, but I think you can handle it. Um The misunderstanding that you're talking about, whereas, you know, and I think you see a lot of it from black people where they feel like, you know, it's 2020 and there's still so much you can't do specifically because you're black. You feel like you're on the margins of society, especially in all the worst ways. Right. Like financially, like anything bad that has to do with money, like in terms of like wealth or or or, uh, collective earnings, whatever it is, black people are like at the bottom of it. So as a black community, you, you constantly feel like, you know that 2020 is just not for you. And Mm -hmm. I know recently there's been a lot of just um, 
misunderstandings with the Jewish community because the Jewish community is the one community that the black people always point to and say, well, I mean, look at Jewish people. They're wealthy. They have power. They have this. You know, we should do this. We should do that or whatever the case may be. So you talked about how when your mom was growing up, that wasn't necessarily the situation that the Jewish community might have found themselves in, whereas things have kind of changed over the last 40, 50 years or whatever the case may be. So why do you think you have a good grasp of both? Why do you think that there is still this like misunderstanding or or there is this like big, I guess, divide on both sides? Like, why do you think, you know, black people look at Jewish people and say, why can't we do that? Why do you think Jewish people look at black people and say, well, no, we're still a prosecutor kind of thing? Yeah, so um, this is a great question, like multifaceted here. But yeah, like we were saying, like today, I, I would say that part of my community is fairly affluent and and well educated and 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 featured pretty prominently in many aspects of public life. Um, but it hasn't always been the case, and you know we have a, a, a complicated role in the struggle for civil rights today. I think part of the misunderstanding comes from like our communities today and, and have been for quite some time are, are tend to be pretty segregated. And I think, you know, at least in the United States, like patterns of segregation and in our major metropolitan areas like DC, for instance, can be traced back to like housing laws and policies in the early 20th century. So think like redlining, for instance, uh, which for listeners who might not be familiar is like banks, not backing loans, um, from uh, black people and the ability to buy a house was like the major factor of being able to accrue like generational wealth and stability in this country. Um, and even cities, again, like DC and um, huge cities in this country with substantial black populations still tend to be highly segregated. So our communities tend to live like pretty separately. And, um, you know, a lot of misunderstanding comes from that because if we don't know each other, uh, that's where misinformation can rise up. And it happens like far too often in an age where information is readily available. And I would say it goes both ways. Like I'm really troubled by, you know, some of the comments that we've had about the Jewish community in the last several months. Um, but I get asked crazy questions all the time from my like, Jewish community members. And I'm like, you're kind of crossing the line there, but I will, um, let me just drop some knowledge and, and we can move forward. Um, but like a lot of these, these myths, both about the black community and the Jewish community have existed for, for so long. And like we were talking about before, they become like the basis for persecution and expulsion. Um, there are myths around the Jewish community with like, you know, ridiculous myths around like world domination through banking and capitalism and controlling the media. And indeed that's like some of the things we've heard recently. And, and these myths are, are, are stereotypes. Uh, they're sometimes completely false and sometimes rooted in, in troubling history. And these myths and stereotypes were very central to the worldview of, of Hitler. And sadly, they persist to the present day. Um, and now we see like Holocaust denial as part of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So, um, I, sorry, I got a little off track with like what the question is, but like, I think, yeah, the, the misunderstanding comes that our, our communities are, are, are very segregated. And I think sometimes people don't recognize like how troubling and dangerous, uh, conspiracy theories and anti-black or anti-Jewish sentiment can be. Um, 
it's not always manifested in something as clear as, as what I was talking about, like in Idaho of someone like shouting the N word at us or calling my mom a nigger lover. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes they're subtle and shrouded in absent-minded stereotyping and unchallenged colloquialisms, but it's nonetheless incredibly dangerous. And I think, you know, we've been, I've been thinking a lot about Congressman John Lewis and like the struggle for civil rights, especially in the past few weeks and, and doing a lot more like reading of his autobiography and listening to his talks and things like that. And I remember in one interview with David Axelrod, he was telling a story that was like, uh, a man and his son came to his office on the Hill and, um, the older man was crying and he was saying, I, I just want to let you know that like when you were, um, you know, leading the sit-ins, you were in a restaurant and in some state in the South and I beat you and I spat on you and I'm so sorry. And I've felt incredibly guilty about it over the years. I, I, I've like changed my ways. I've raised my son to be differently and my grandchildren are also differently. And, you know, we live in the way of like peace and tolerance. And he gave John Lewis a hug. And, and after he told that story, John Lewis said, we can't give up on anyone. Like anyone has the capacity for change. Um, a lot of times, like, you know, these terrible things are rooted in like misunderstanding and misinformation, but we can't give up on anyone. So like, when I see these tweets come out, of course, it's like troubling and it's also frightening that people still have these views today. But I think we can't just like shun and shame these people. I think that we have a duty to educate them, to turn them into advocates and to get them to a place where they have a greater understanding of the nuances of culture and the history around it and how dangerous, you know, these stereotypes can be. And also then to go out and educate other people so that's what I, you know, I don't want to see anybody like necessarily like fired or shunned or shamed, but like, let's set people on the right path and, and kind of bring our communities together in that way. And we all have a duty to call out, you know, racism and stereotypes and dangerous, unchallenged colloquialisms when we see them. I want, well, while we do have a few minutes, maybe you can speak a little bit more about You Don't Look Jewish and more of your yeah, community activism, because I know that plays a major role in, you know, your everything that you everything that you do, your previous positions you held, as well as your current position. So maybe talking a little bit more about more with Fofo. With, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, I started You Don't Look Jewish uh, a few years ago after um, the killing of Michael Brown. And I think that was a period, you know, we had like Trayvon Martin and just all of these like extrajudicial killings of like innocent black people in this country, um, you know, men, women, and children. And like so many Americans, especially Americans of color, was just feeling like, I, I don't know, just like so sad and hopeless and like, and what do we do? And I think these incidents pushed a lot of people in my generation toward like activism, both like social activism and political activism. And, and, you know, that was no different for me. And I felt like a space where I could address some of these issues was in the Jewish community specifically. Um, because, you know, as a Jew of color, like, 
we're probably around like 12 to 15% of the Jewish community. And we know that this number is likely to increase, but it, it's definitely changing, but it hasn't always been a welcoming space. And again, like people, I think, operate out of uh, sincerity and sometimes just ignorance, but like, you know, going into a Jewish space and being asked what you're doing there, who you're with, like all those questions doesn't create a very welcoming atmosphere. So I remember in relation to some of these uh, police killings at the time, I, I had watched a TED talk by... Um, this incredible woman, she's a diversity advocate. Her name is Verna Myers. And she talked about like the subconscious attitudes that we as human beings hold toward outgroups or, you know, people who we would consider outgroups. Um, and, you know, we see time and time again how these can be deadly, as in the case of like Eric Garner, Michael Brown, and countless others, unfortunately. So in her talk, she makes a plea to people to acknowledge your biases, and she says to move toward them, to walk boldly toward them and not away from them. So walk toward groups that make you feel uncomfortable because you don't know them. Like, you know, have a diverse friend group, like challenge preconceived notions. So I did, as I started this website, very simple concept, but it just featured pictures of Jews of color doing Jewish things. And the idea behind that was that like, I think when you say like Jewish person, um, the immediate assumption, it's like when you say apple, like people probably picture like a red round apple. There are so many different kinds of apples and they're all delicious, right? So like, if you think like, Jewish, you think someone who looks like Seinfeld or like, uh, you know, like guy with like a black hat and beard, but they're usually white. And like our community is so incredibly diverse in all senses. And so I wanted to feature that. And I figured like people going through this website and just by starting to look at pictures and learning the stories of different, you know, of Jews of color, whether they were like Iraqi or Ethiopian or like black American Jews could kind of reset that picture in their brain. So when you see a Jewish person of color walk into a Jewish space, it's not odd. It feels natural. So that was like the point of the website. And then it grew to like providing like educational resources and a calendar of events and different things like that. Um, and it's been really successful and a really fun project, but you know, something else that I really believe is important is the concept of passing the mic. Um, since the time I had started that website, there have been so many incredible, um, activists around racial justice in the Jewish space who are doing the work much better than I've ever been able to. So I still have the domain, but I don't really maintain the website. But there are like so many other people doing awesome work in this space, conducting studies, out there doing the advocacy and education work. Um, so we kind of, we share that platform, but I've stepped back a little bit. Um, yeah. So that's You Don't Look Jewish. Um, it was so much fun. And I called, I started calling it youdontlookjewish.com because that was what I would hear all the time. And I just really wanted people to understand that there's no standard Jewish look. We come in all shapes, sizes, and colors found in nature. <laughs> so I want people to know that. And I think I will I say it. quickly too, like the other thing is that like, you know, the basis of what we want as a Jewish community is is to keep you know, what I believe, or what we believe is this beautiful way of life alive and flourishing. And um, our demographics are changing around the world and especially in this country. And we're not going to be able to keep it alive and flourishing in the way that we want to unless we provide a welcoming space for all types of Jews, no matter what you look like or how you practice or what you believe in. Um, 
we need to have a seat at the table for everyone to keep this way of life alive. I really do believe that. And so that's what I was working toward with You Don't Look Jewish. No, I definitely agree. I think what you're saying is super important, um, especially from the perspective that I think this is this is what travel does, right? I think that's one of the, the great, amazing things about travel is that it allows us to interact with people from different backgrounds and cultures and to really, you know, go beyond just what we might ordinarily see or interact with. And I think totally. um, it's, it's super important, particularly between, I'd say definitely between the Black and Jewish communities to have that joint understanding just because there are so many you know, cultural similarities or understandings that we can share. And I think that, you know, it's due to, in large part, you know, lots of propaganda or misinformation that people do seem to think that, you know, Jewish people just look a particular way or, you know, you just have an expectation rather than understanding, you know, just how diverse Jewish people can be and the fact that there are Black Jewish people. I think it's also very, very similar to um, even with Latino people as well, right? Where I think there's not enough people that talk about or understand that there are black Latino people. And so people often have rhetoric where we're kind of distinguishing between them as though they're completely separate. But actually, you know, there's people that share both cultures and it's important totally. to embrace that. And I have so many friends, like my friend who I mentioned, Javi, for instance, who almost got us killed in West Virginia with his uh, <laughs> T-shirt and mask. But we said the magic word, Cracker Barrel, and uh, we were saved. But um, yeah, he's he's black and Latino. And like, I don't think just like being black and Jewish, like he doesn't consider himself half and half. It's like you're both, you're a whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. part of what makes like the fabric of the world so beautiful and so interesting to live in, right? Um, yeah. Hold on, last question, because I, I have to ask you this. Then, as a um, so as a, a black woman and a Jewish woman, are there things because we have we talk here all the time? And for example, Tiffany, our Tiffany says points out how the dollar in the black community stays. I forgot the exact thing, but it stays in the black community for like five minutes, whereas the dollar in the Jewish community circulates throughout the community like for three weeks or something like that. I, I forgot the exact, but basically the idea that you know, we don't do group economics good enough um, to like help ourselves in the black community. And there are different things that we can learn from the Jewish community. So I, I do want to ask you as someone who's, you know, steeped in both, are there things or times that you, do you think to yourself, you know what, um, the black community can actually do this, that the Jewish community does and it will improve us and it will be better that we can learn from. And is there anything the other way around that you sit, you know, when you see the Jewish community, you're like, you know what, we could actually learn from the black community in this particular way and do this. I've always been fascinated with that question. So thank you. Oh my God. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I was, as I was thinking about that question, I was like, there, like the shared, uh, wisdom goes both ways and there's there's so much that our community could also learn um from the black community um yeah like any any number of things which is why I, I like love when we're able to come together in that way but i don't know when i was thinking about this question as i was reading it through and um so the way like in our tradition the jewish community or jewish people serve god by we say like study prayer and observance to the commandments set forth in the Torah. But study is like a huge, huge thing in our community and in our tradition. And I know there are like incredible challenges around like, 
you know, the ability to get an education aid to be able to afford it. I think especially in rural communities, I mean, so many barriers to that, but, but study and education is really, really the ticket uh, to upward mobility. And we've seen that for um, groups in the United States. Again, like so many barriers to education. And even when you find that you, you know, have a master's degree, you're still facing barriers, but it is, it is an incredible way forward. And so like, you know, putting that as like the center focus is, is huge. But in the Jewish community, we have like a really interesting, like social structure, I guess, like traditionally, like the synagogue, and I guess also too in like the black church, but like synagogue centered bodies and like communal boards and designated people who, um, are tasked with engaging in relations or political relations on behalf of the community, um, is really helpful. Like there's sort of a, a unified communal vision and there's like a leadership structure, which I think helps get things done both like socially and from a political standpoint. Like there's in previous administrations, there's typically like a white house Jewish liaison. There's like a Jewish representative for like the democratic party and the Republican party in the United States. And I think we have like diversity champions in those areas, but we don't have like, I don't know if we have like a dedicated voice in the black community right now. We have like a lot of different groups doing incredible things, but I think having that kind of unified front is very helpful. I think kind of like during the civil rights movement, it was like maybe not everyone in the community. Yeah, certainly not everyone in the community agreed with Dr. Martin Luther King and there were competing factions, but to have that like kind of central figure, I think is sometimes helpful. Um, Hmm, We have like a really strong system. Yeah. And I mean, again, like people could disagree with that and I could be totally off, but it was just something that I was thinking about as I was thinking about like the, the structure and like the way of like, you know, getting like social and political change, um, funding aspect. Like when I, I went to grad school on like a huge scholarship that did not come from the U S government. They gave me loans with a very high interest rate through the Jewish community. I was able to get like a huge grant that allowed me to attend school to advance my education. Um, Through Birthright, I got my first opportunity to travel for free. We didn't have money. Like we were on food stamps. I would have never been able to leave the country at that time. Um, A lot of leadership development. We were talking before the call started, the African uh, yoga project. I met this woman through a fellowship that was funded through the Jewish community. She got some of the funding to start this project through the Jewish community. So there's like a really, really incredible... um, funding net that was set up and, and, you know, all sorts of things that helped me get to where I am today that I would not have had access to had I not been, you know, a member of this community, a contributing member of this community, which I think by very definition, you know, a community is a community of reciprocity. You give and you receive, right? So we have to keep both of those in mind and also philanthropy. Um, Philanthropy, like for us, it allows for the preservation and continuation of, Jewish ideals and values and principles and our traditions. And I think American Jews give more to charity than like just about any other ethnic or religious group in the States. And I think part of that is ingrained in, in our tradition of charity, which we call tzedakah. So traditionally, like you're supposed to give away at least 10% of, of what you earn. And I, I do that. I give away 10% of what I earn before taxes to charitable groups. Some are Jewish groups and others are non-Jewish groups. And also within the concept of Sadaka, we have like this like Jewish philosopher, 
from like long time ago named Maimonides had different levels of charitable giving. So, you know, give anonymously, give without being asked to do so. And in that 10%. So I really do take that seriously. And I think a lot of members of our community do and, and give anonymously because it's important to give for the sake of benefiting your community and, and creating a world that we want to live in for generations to come. And I think those concepts have been really helpful for us. And because of that charitable giving and philanthropy, I was able to accomplish so much of my life and get to where I am today. And I have a sense of giving back. Um, so that's what I would advocate, especially for younger people. Like we have to get into the concept of charitable giving. Um, it, you know, it doesn't hurt that there's like higher than average education and per capita income, but we can all get started. Like when I was in college and I started giving, it would be like $5 a month to an organization. And that number has grown as my, you know, salary and my ability to give has grown. So yeah, you know crazy? education, in the black charitable community. giving. Social organization. Sorry, tithing, go ahead. Right? <laughs> now, in the black in the black community, we have tithing, and it's the same thing, right? You give tithes, and it's supposed to be ten percent of your 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 income. But I think the problem with tithes, as Tiffany will probably agree, is you give it to your church, and Lord knows what your pastor is going to do with it, right? So you have some pastors yeah. that you know some churches like just what you say, right? They'll give grants to like younger members of the community to kind of start their lives, or maybe go to um or go to like school or something like that, but that's way too few and far between. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of people tied to churches that the church ends up like trying to expand the church instead of like, you know, giving it back into like the community. But that's like a different conversation for a different day. But I think that was actually a fascinating answer. We, so we synagogue, synagogues, they cost money. And so you pay your membership dues and that's what that goes to. And I do give to various synagogues, but then, that 10% is really spread out to a number of organizations. But like in cases where like you may disagree with the way like your church is being run, like, you know, take on a leadership position in the church and you can start to dictate where those funds go and how the money is being spent. I think like if we see like a facet of our community not being run the way we believe it should be run, it's up to us to kind of challenge that and bring in our perspective, right? I mean, that was part of starting you don't look Jewish.com. I was like, I see some gaps here, some opportunities. Like as a member of this community, it's my duty to play a part in making it better. So if you don't like where the money's being spent in your church, either join a different church or try to change that. <laughs> nah, that's great. That's, that's, that's great. Um, I would, but you see, um, one thing I would say, which is, um, a great byproduct of what's going on with protesting and, Black Lives Matter, there are a lot of people who are now reaching out and when they ask you things about your business or your company, they, they're asking, is it Black-owned? And I see the mindset of many Black people in the States, in the Caribbean, also on the continent, where they want to support Black-owned businesses. But I guess maybe if you were just to say maybe two or three things, which we can see maybe... Uh, three to five, three to five years where we can see a drastic change of investing in the black community, seeing the dollar circulate and staying in a community at a longer time. What do you think, like what three steps would you recommend aside from maybe investing in black owned businesses and accountability? 
Yeah. So if, I think that question, that's a really great question, but it probably varies like country to country and, you know, community to community, but definitely like investing in black owned businesses, investing in female black owned businesses, because as women, we face like even more, uh, challenges and barriers to getting access to capital, um, which is, you know, even the first step. Um, I think, a culture of, which already exists to some degree, but really like honing down on like a culture of like volunteerism and philanthropy. If someone can provide a service to entrepreneurs around like financial, like training or, you know, tech training or offer like pro bono skills to help those businesses grow, that is great. And I feel like, you know, in the Jewish community, I know that as I, if I'm like starting a new venture, like even with you don't look Jewish.com, it was like, I knew where to go in the community. Like before I had like money where I could get like business advice or, um, the resources I needed to get this project off the ground without like, you know, spending an incredible amount of resources to begin with. So people like really like having a network to offer those services, which I think exist to some degree, but really kind of unifying that. I think about things like, you know, the green book, right? Where it was like, if like black people in this country traveling across state, like new, like safe, uh, restaurants and places they could stay. Mm -hmm. It's like the Jewish community has had that for a really long time, both out of necessity, but also out of like supporting our community members and helping, helping to strengthen, um, those different sectors. But so really like keeping those kind of practices alive, like really like supporting your community members and their business ventures, supporting the social structures around the community, um, giving money, giving time, giving advice. Uh, if you got a large social media following, like throwing some shout outs around, like all of that stuff really, really helps. I would also always, of course, love to see like more black and Jewish representation in our political leaders around the world, really. But I'm thinking specifically in the States right now, as we have elections coming up, like, so people really putting themselves forward for like political appointee positions, uh, running for local statewide and national office, I think is really, really important. Um, visibility, you know, representation is really, really crucial to changing some of these things. And so I think, I think that's where it starts. And again, like with supporting black owned businesses or Jewish owned businesses or women, minority owned businesses, whatever, like if you know someone running for office, um, you know, help them volunteer, give whatever kind of advice, guidance or resources you can so that we can, we can start to change some of these systems from the ground up. I hear that. That's the vision. For sure. Yeah. 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 So I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, Tiffany. So what is next for you? Yeah. So tomorrow, Monday, I'm starting a new job at an organization called Moisha House. I'm going to be the chief program officer for this incredible international Jewish organization. So I am, I'm so, so, so excited about that. Um, it's something I've been involved with for a number of years. And now I really like get to put my passion into action in a professional sense. So that is super exciting for me. 
Um, the latest language I've been studying uh, very lightly so far is is Dutch. So come back to me in like a few months or a few weeks and maybe I'll be able to say something in Dutch, which is like such a difficult language. So uh, hoping for some progress. My job will eventually take me to California when the offices are open up again. So I'm making a West Coast move. Um, and then I just started a partnership with an organization called uh, Sakara, which is a wellness company. So a lot of big things happening and, and really, really excited for what's next. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So Tiffany, you got a big tune for us? Yeah. So I've been on this, okay. I've been on this R&B kick. I love R&B music. Um, and even like, as I've been working out, I've been like listening to these like R&B slow jams, which is totally crazy. But like the two songs and I've got to pick one. It's going to be tough. Maybe like you guys can vote for me um, that have been like just on my playlist nonstop and repeat. And I've gotten my friends like rehooked on it is Keith Sweat Twisted, <laughs> which I don't know if you guys remember that song. So good. Shout out to Keith Sweat. Shout out to the all white suit and the lady singing in the background and the incredible music video with like the detective seat. Like it's just awesome. So Keith Sweat Twisted. And soul for real, candy coated raindrops, which is such a a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, I love listening to those. Like those are two jams that I always have. Like as a plane, you know, the plane is taking off, which is like the worst part of traveling for me. I hate the feeling. Um, you know, soul for real really smooths it out, and then key sweat twisted is just a really solid beat. <laughs> so. Nah, and that's what it is. But it's all good because our Tiffany's always get two songs, as David would tell you. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, well, Tiffany, thank you for joining us. Um, you know, we love you. We support you. You always have a home here. You can come back at any time. Um, thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. So, till next time, this y'all. Was peace. So much fun. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for joining us on Travel and Turn Up. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review. Find more information about any topics or destinations discussed by following us on social media. Search Travel and Turn Up, that's T-A-R-V-E-L-N-T-U-R-N-U-P on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Travel more, say less.